This is Real Good by U.S. Bank, a podcast about helpers. You have effectively half of African Americans today locked out of the free enterprise system, unable to dream big dreams, unable to operationalize those big dreams. And a dream without a plan is just a dream, and that then leads to frustration. I'm Faith Saley. The impact of the novel coronavirus is hard to overstate. It upended life for everyone. It created a new normal full of new problems, but it also shined a light on issues that have long existed in communities across the country. This show is dedicated to the stories of people making a difference. Folks who are fighting for those in need against problems old and new, isolated and intersectional. Each week, we'll talk with nonprofit leaders organizing vital aid, U.S. Bank team members supporting their efforts, and those people whose lives they're changing. This week, our guest is John Hope Bryant, the CEO and founder of Operation Hope. We talked about how what he calls a lack of financial dignity keeps people of color in cycles of poverty. And I learned that the name Hope comes from a very real place for John. Hey, John, it's Faith. I'm so happy to talk to you. Thank you for making time for us. That's my honor. Does anyone call you John? Because John Hope Bryant is like, that sounds so good altogether. (laughs) Um, I hadn't thought about it, but... Uh, people call me GHB, John Hope, John Hope Bryant. Uh, I guess as I think about it, uh, the question that very few people call me John. Yeah. Where does the hope, where does the hope come from in your name? Well, it's my legal name, but um, it became my legal name about 20 years ago uh, when I couldn't get on a plane. Uh, when I was, uh, the Operation Hope after the Rodney King riots in 1992 became uh, known around the world, I would be asked to go speak on other continents, and they would uh, follow the lead of the press, which called me John Hope, or the blog. I couldn't get a blog back then. That blogs were very popular. I couldn't get a blog that was John Bryant, so I had to get John Hope Bryant. That made it worse. Uh, so they would issue plane tickets that said John Hope Bryant, and because that was my, not my middle, my legal name, I could not get on the plane. Um, it was not on my passport. Uh, so it's like Stevie Wonder, who's a friend. Uh, so I'm sure he would allow me to say this. Stevie Wonder's name is really Steve Lynn Morris. That's his legal name. Uh, but he has he had to legally change it as an AKA so that he could get on a plane known as Stevie Wonder because that's where people know him, how they issue plane tickets, uh, et cetera. So it's, it's just a quirk that I, I could not operate in the legal world uh, with uh, with a nickname. Uh, so I made the nickname my real name. So it just it went from John Bryan to John Hope Bryan. I love that story. What a what a beautiful reason for a midlife christening. <laughs> well, and it's a lot to live up to, which I yeah. which I don't mind. You 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 got to be you got to be positive, hopeful, and and in your purpose all the time. And so it can't be a game. I also just love that Stevie Wonder and John Hope are friends. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Well, that's that's cool. That's cooler for that's cooler for me to him than to him to me. I guarantee you. John, where did you grow up? Compton, California, South Central Los Angeles. 
We're seeing a movement of people protesting right now. And and you mentioned the Rodney King riots before. Did you grow up seeing that kind of activity? Well, there's only been um, two major riots in U.S. history. There, you've had the Watts riots, and I was uh, um, baby a baby when that happened. That was '68. I was born in '66. You had the Rodney King riots, which which was the uh, precipice that founded Operation Hope. So I didn't grow up uh, experiencing riots, but I grew up experiencing. Um, uh, injustice yeah. and the invisibility of great people who just um, weren't really relevant to somebody's balance sheet, weren't working in a corporation. So when they died, when they were murdered uh, in front of me, that happened twice um, it, before I was nine years old, um, it, it didn't make the news. And there was no social media back then. So there was, as, as Will Smith said, racism's not new, it's just being recorded, it's mm-hmm. being filmed. There was no filming back then. So um, I, I witnessed um, the death of my family's marriage, uh, my mom and dad's marriage and our net worth lost over money uh, when I was five mm-hmm. uh, and the domestic abuse that came from that. <clears throat> I witnessed my play uncle who saved my life when I was seven years old, murdered in front of me and drugged down the street um, until he was dead uh, by a pickup truck driver who was really a drug dealer because my uncle was selling marijuana in the wrong neighborhood trying to make extra money. Um, and my uncle didn't know what he was doing. He was just trying to make, make extra money. He was an otherwise good guy. He just didn't know, he didn't know how to go work the mainstream economic system. So he worked the underground economy system that we unfortunately knew too well in my neighborhoods. Well, the guys who control the territory where my uncle decided to make some extra dollars, didn't think that was such a great idea, followed him back to our neighborhood and with me sitting on the porch, uh, I hit him on a bike and uh, drug him down the street. And I saw that when I was sitting on the porch. This man saved my life uh, six months earlier when I almost swallowed my tongue as I fell back on his porch. Um, and then uh, about a year and a half later, two years later, my best friend George, who was 18, I was nine-ish, um, was murdered uh, because he hung out with the wrong people, uh, because he hung out, hung out with the, the next-door neighbor, who, uh, for me, who was a local thug, Tweet, uh, who had really bad parents and a really bad environment and a really bad culture. Um, and my best friend, who was smarter than me, George, I keep saying his name because no one will know his name if I don't, Yeah. Uh, George... Um, walked like Tweet, began to act like Tweet, and got shot and killed like Tweet because he didn't know who he was. And the difference was that I had a mom who told me she loved me every day of my life, Juanita Smith. And I had a dad who owned his own business for 54 years, Johnny Smith. So I had a sense of, yes, I am, and yes, I can. And that let me know what I could do and that I was better than my circumstances. Tweet and George did not have those same role models and reinforcers, at least not positive reinforcers. So I, I witnessed that kind of, if you want to call it the rioting of a spirit, the, mm-hmm. the civil unrest of, of, a, of a block, of, of uh, the, the, the failure of aspiration in a community, the inability to lock into the American dream, uh, to go from the, suites, from the streets to the suites, or as I would say, from civil rights to civil rights, 
yeah, I witness that all the time. Thank you for saying George's name. I, I, it's, it's, um, my, my daughter is six and I recently overheard her kindergarten class in remote learning. Um, all the girls who are the same age as George, one of George Floyd's daughters unmuted themselves and said George Floyd's name. And what you just said is important. People need to be remembered. Yes. And it's interesting that my best friend who was murdered, I hadn't thought about that to this moment was also named George. Yeah. Of course, we're referring now to George Floyd from Minneapolis and the murder that was witnessed on film um, by officers sworn to protect. So, yeah, I'm I, I'm reminded that one of my employees who happens to be Caucasian was wrestling with what she could do now. And, you know, she looked at me and said, John, the thing I think I can do best is to raise my newborn child uh, to have the kind of values uh, and beliefs that we want to see in this world. I've got to raise her better yeah. uh, than I was raised. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful thing. I think it's beautiful what you just said about your daughter too. It sounds like the messages that you got from your parents uh, at a very young age contributed to a spirit of, of entrepreneurship for you, even as a kid, right? You had a, you had a, a neighborhood candy store? Well, yeah, of course that is true. We model what we see. Um, why do kids want to be rap stars, athletes, drug dealers, whatever the mm. analogy is in these communities? Uh, it's not that these kids are dumb or they're stupid. They're actually quite smart. They're modeling what they see. If all you see in your neighborhood is a, as a symbol of success, is a rap star, an athlete, or a drug dealer, then why are we surprised the kids grow up wanting to be precisely that, a rap star, an athlete, or a drug dealer? So what I saw was possibilities because my father owned a business and his father owned a farm. And uh, my great-great-grandfather was a slave. Um, oh. So... Uh, we felt a in, in, in intense responsibility to be present. Um, so I had a sense, a very strong sense from my parents, yes, of who I was and whose I was and mm. what and whom I could become. Um, and that was a, was a game changer, not just for me. I think that's a game changer for everybody. Um, if you hang around nine broke people, you'll be the 10th mm. is another way to put it. Uh, whatever you hang around, whatever you see, that's probably what you will be. Uh, so yeah, that that was, I was, I guess to put it another way, the first quote that I ever presented at Operation Hope when I founded it was there's a difference between being broke and being poor. Being broke is economic, but being poor is a disabling frame of mind, a depressed condition of our spirit, and we must vow never, ever, ever to be poor again. Uh, and so I was broke, but I wasn't poor. But a lot of folks around me had the poverty of mentality. They, they didn't believe in themselves. So I, I had that love. My mother poured into me. And so when I went to school at nine years old, <clears throat> in what was then called a home economics class, doesn't exist anymore because of a lack of funding in public schools for classes such as this, uh, a white banker had come there in a blue suit, white shirt, red tie, 
uh, had come there because the Community Reinvestment Act, this was the first year of its enactment, he was asked to go and do community service. Back then, that's what CRA meant. And thank God for it. He, otherwise, he would never have made it to my neighborhood. <laughs> he would have <laughs> certainly would not have just waddled in there on his own volition. So he shows up in my neighborhood. He shows up in my classroom. Most people in my neighborhood had met whites negatively. A police officer slamming you against a patrol car. Someone talking down to you. The only white man we ever saw in my neighborhood other than this one was a detective wearing a bad suit. And I don't mean a bad suit. I mean a really bad suit, like an <laughs> ugly suit. And, and, uh, and so this guy shows up in my classroom and he's so cool and he's calm and he's collected and he's unbothered and he has a nice car in the parking lot. And he's got a ring on and he, a wedding ring and something, another ring. And he's he's just he's he's like a (laughs) he's like the coolest thug you ever saw in the neighborhood but he's not a thug he's legit he's clearly Mm -hmm. legit and and i raised my hand in the second session and i said excuse me sir what do you do for a living and how did you get rich legally you said that legally yeah oh absolutely i was dead serious there are no there were no skyscrapers in my neighborhood there were no office buildings in my neighborhood the only building that was multi-story was the courthouse (laughs) okay there was nobody with a suit and tie on in my neighborhood no one with a business card in my neighborhood no one on salary in my neighborhood everyone's hourly workers like i mean this is like a martian showing up so what do you do for a living sir how'd you get rich legally nobody in my neighborhood got rich legally he says, young man, I'm a banker and I finance entrepreneurs. I said, you know what? I don't know what an entrepreneur is. <laughs> no one had ever told me that word, unfortunately. And uh, this, is a, this is a sin now. In, in, in all my life, to nine years of age, no one had ever uttered that word entrepreneur to me. Mm. And I said, sir, I don't know what an entrepreneur is, but if you're financing them, I'm going to be one. <laughs> And uh, so started my journey. Went home, opened, back then it was a dictionary to the word entrepreneur. You can Google search it now. And uh, looked it up to create something from nothing, a French word. Uh, I said, I'm going to be that. It's self-employed, self-actualized. That's a new definition of freedom, self-determination. This is what I'm going to do. And make a long story short, one thing led to another. I went to try to do some market research at the liquor store that sold candy and the owner of the of the store, Mr. Mack was overly confident and wouldn't listen to me when I told him that I knew what kind of candy the young people should be buying. He, he sort of waved me away. I, he said, I've got a college degree. I said, that's nice. I've got cavities and uh, you should listen to me. And so I went to go work for him for three weeks as a box boy. So I got to figure out where he bought his inventory. Then I quit and took my mother. My mother took me to the source of his <laughs> candy purchases, the supplier. I bought candy, opened up the neighborhood candy house in the den of my home, which was unlike him on the way to school, location, 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 um, and put him out of the candy business. Wait, did you just say, I'm sorry, you just said you, you, you put him out of the candy business? I put him out of the candy business. Uh, he didn't respect the marketplace <laughs> and he didn't listen. And you knew your customers. You know, it, it strikes me to hear you talk about um, learning about entrepreneurship as as a kid and that you were surrounded by what you also call the underground economy. I mean, entrepreneurship was kind of all around you. It just wasn't legal, right? 
of course. Uh, look, talent is everywhere. Uh, gifts are equally distributed. Uh, the question is less whether you have the potential, but how does life and environment respond to that potential? Steve Jobs was, a, as an example, a Syrian immigrant uh, who, uh, whose father fell in love um, with a young lady from Middle America who happened to be Caucasian. Uh, her father was not having a Syrian immigrant in the family, uh, nor a grandchild. Uh, so they had put the child up for adoption. The uh, short story is that Jobs was bounced around. He was directed to go to a wealthy family, but that family declined it, uh, the adoption. He ended up with a middle-class family in Silicon Valley by the name of Jobs. Uh, and just so happens that around the corner from the Jobs family was another family named Wozniak. And they became friends and created a company in a garage called Apple. <laughs> but if Steve Jobs, who was a brilliant marketer, really was a mediocre engineer, but a brilliant marketer and designer, if Steve Jobs had ended up being adopted by a single mother in the south side of Chicago, he might have been the biggest drug dealer that Chicago had ever seen, just because yeah. of his entrepreneurial talent, because of his grit, because of his, his, his ability. So, I mean, an entrepreneur, right? and a drug dealer share these traits. They understand import, export, finance, marketing, wholesale, retail, customer service, security, territory, logistics, amongst other talents and skills, strategy, um, tactics, execution, uh, long-term uh, planning, thinking, research and development. Uh, it's just that some kids uh, get a shot because their parents have the right DNA. Uh, they were born in the right zip code. That's right. They have the right friends. And other kids end up in a space where everything around them is negative reinforcements. And as I said earlier, if you hang around nine broke people, you'll be the 10th. Whatever you hang around, you will be. So yes, there's a huge, huge underground economy of people, young people, who end up in prison versus end up in palaces. So tell us about the early days of Operation Hope. What was your intention when you started it? disruption. My intention was to be a disruptor. Uh, my intention then and now is to change the world in my lifetime. Uh, my intention was, uh, at 26 years old, was um, uh, to eradicate poverty as we know it in the world. Um, people laughed at me. Most everybody laughed at me. 26 years old, uh, no balance sheet no relationship capital to think of, to speak of. Um, a little success under my belt. I mean, I had grown a company from zero to $24 million a year in business by the time I was 25, uh, which was very respectable. But, you know, I wasn't a, a world-class entrepreneur. Uh, no one knew my name outside of my local community. But I, I had succeeded. I had made some money. Um, You'd sold some candy. My, I sold some candy, legal candy, <laughs> um, and I was selling a legal ho a legal drug now called Hope. <laughs> um, but uh, no one took me seriously, and I mean no one, which was uh, sort of beautiful uh, because first people ignore you. I've learned first people ignore you, then if you keep at it, they criticize you, 
And if you keep at it, they try to copy you. And if you keep at it, then you win. So this was my, not only my personal story, it was a story of everybody I grew up with. And I figured out I had to win in order for them to be seen. So um, Operation Hope was founded as a, a nonprofit, America's first nonprofit social investment bank with a mission to change the world and eradicate poverty as we know it in, in my lifetime. Um, and poverty to me is mental. It's a state of mind. It's not a physical being. So that was possible to get to get people to have a shift in their thought leadership uh, from being a, 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 a just saying settling from being a, a renter and saying I'm going to become a, a homeowner of, of settling from being a, a small business dreamer and becoming a small business owner, S settling and just accepting that you're going to always cash checks versus going to uh, U.S. Bank and writing a check uh, on your own account uh, as a business owner. These things are shifts in mindset, and that that was something that I thought we could do. Sorry to interrupt. Um, I I was I fell down a wonderful rabbit hole on the Operation Hope website, and I was so struck by this language from your website: "Modern slavery in underserved communities looks something like this: a check casher next to a payday lender, next to a rent-to-own store, next to a liquor store." what you're describing is a mental is a mental shift out of that that kind of thinking right correct and and to quote ambassador andrew young who was on that balcony when dr king was assassinated in 1968 uh to live in a system of free enterprise and not to understand the rules of free enterprise must be the very definition of slavery mm. You talk about financial dignity, and and it strikes me from listening to you that that's that 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 nobody, particularly African Americans, are emancipated or truly treated as equals until they have and are given financial dignity. How do you define financial dignity? A credit score. <laughs> really, it's um, numbers. Yeah, half of a forty-one percent, forty-two percent of all African Americans in this country—not poor people, all people. Forty-two percent of all African Americans in this country, of all socioeconomic status, including those with advanced degrees, have a credit score below six hundred and twenty. Now, you cannot get a prime mortgage at six hundred and twenty. You cannot get a small business loan, which is unsecured arguably risky credit, less than 700. You cannot get a decent credit card with a decent interest rate below, say, 650. And it goes on and on and on. And so you have effectively half of African-Americans today locked out of the free enterprise system, unable to dream big dreams, unable to operationalize those big dreams. And a dream without a plan is just a dream. And that then leads to frustration. So so we lack the tool. So so this is cruelty. Like this is like a black swan. You combine the history I'm telling you with COVID-19 and uh, and I guess you want to call it police police brutality. Um, although I think this is an after effect of everything else we're talking about. 
and you're, and you're really talking about a black black swan moment for Black America right now. I mean, it's 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 like the worst of all things. Mm-hmm. Your self esteem was destroyed in slavery. You were told you weren't anything for 400 years. You probably believe it. And there's a di- difference between self esteem and self confidence. You can have competence, which creates confidence. So I can be an engineer in your studio right now and have total self-confidence in my abilities. That doesn't mean I have self-esteem because Mm -hmm. that's self-love. That's what my mother poured into me. And that's what was robbed from Africans so they can control our movements uh, during the slave period of 300 plus years. So low self-esteem, no memo on money, we live in a free enterprise democracy. So no one taught us how business works, how free enterprise works, entrepreneurship, uh, a checking account, savings account, investments, compounded interest, compounded invest. You know what I mean? It's, it, you know, you combine that plus no relationship capital, you know, because they're in, the era of internships and apprenticeships died after the Marshall Plan of World War II. Really, really, it's a, it's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it, I don't know, it's like, going off road in a pinto with bad tires i mean it's it's uh, it's a it's a really tough obstacle course not impossible but it's tough we've been doing so much with so little for so long we can almost do anything with nothing but still we rise who are some of the people and businesses you think of when you think of the good work operation hope has done oh uh, well, sure that's easy um there are people who um, have been helped from Operation Hope through um, our bank partners. Uh, I'm thinking about Drove Clothing, Ryan Taylor, who makes all of my suits today. Uh, he came in with a dream to become a tailor, and he wanted to go work for a New York fashion house. And um, we discouraged him. I discouraged him. And he thought that I was uh, uh, messing with his dream and was upset with me. And I said, look, I'm not messing with your dream. If you want to go do that, go do that. But they don't, they're not going to give you that job. And it's not racism. They don't know you. There's no relationship capital. And they're going to probably hire the cousin, nephew, friend of the person that's working with them. That's the way the world works. What you should do is to think about not going to work for a tailor, but becoming one yourself, becoming a designer yourself. So he jumps on that idea. To make a long story short, um, Ryan Taylor is doing a million dollars plus a year uh, for his uh, clothing business. Uh, Thrived right through COVID-19, by the way, because of loyal customer base. This is his 10th year in business. So you, you think about how many millions of dollars he's dropped in GDP in the city of Los Angeles and how many people he's employed, six plus employees. Uh, over this course, how many contractors, vendors he's helped? How much? How much? Uh, uh, how many mortgages he's paid for his, through his employees and car notes and and life insurance policies and medical policies and how many shopping excursions and vacations he's financed through this business? This is a ripple effect of hope. It's dropping a, a little pebble in the in the water and watching the ripple effects go far and wide. We have four million of those clients. Uh, we've dropped $3.5 billion in investment in underserved neighborhoods. Uh, we have 153 Hope Inside locations in 22 states. We're opening additional Hope Insides, by the way, with our partner, U.S. Bank, uh, who's also made a significant commitment 
to us in our work doubling down in response to COVID-19. You have this young lady, Ellen LaVar, uh, who has owned a beauty salon in New York for 20 years. Uh, she was just getting her shop going financially and ready to scale when COVID-19 disrupted her business plan. Um, she went to a local bank, uh, was unable to get PPP uh, for, for her business. This is the CARE Act uh, provision. She mm -hmm. heard uh, our work through one of our uh, partners, which is Susan Taylor and the National Cares Mentoring Network. She came to Operation Hope and she was approved the next day because we helped her prepare properly to get access to the SBA PPP uh, program. Uh, she was able to rehire her laid off employees, pay her bills um, and get her dignity back uh, and her spot in line for the recovery uh, of American uh, economic democracy. I mean, you, you you were talking about, you know, the uncertain situations with the downturn affecting all areas of the economy. I, I, I assume donation activity has changed. So how important is it for donors like U.S. Bank to step in? It's extremely important for us to double down, not retreat. This is a this is an inflection point for America. Um, we're about to figure out who we really are. And U.S. Bank, by the way, was one of the first institutions to step up, and they were the first major bank to make a major commitment to our work. Others have followed. Uh, the, uh, many others have followed. But they were the first ones to step up and say, we need to do something, and it can't just be money. Uh, we need to provide leadership and visibility and messaging and and a mission, and we need to change how we do business and where we do business and why we do business and for whom. Uh, and it was really, uh, you know, quite a spiritual conversation I had with Tim Welsh and Rebba uh, at, at the institution who are just two of their outsized thought leaders. Um, but it's a reflection of the kind of management uh, that, uh, that they have at the bank. Uh, they stepped in, um, and UPS and a bunch of other companies stepped in. The federal government, uh, it, it, we're negotiating with them right now on a uh, uh, hopefully a, a policy around the Marshall Plan itself. But they've also stepped in with some um, some funding support uh, for our mission. We have actually uh, received uh, more support uh, recently than we have for any res response to any disaster. Uh, any surge uh, of, 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 of need since the Rodney King riots of 1992, this has been the biggest support that we've seen. And I think it's because America's, Americans realize that this is a very real moment and, it's, and, it, and all of our um, lives and our futures depend on how we respond in this moment. I've often said that history doesn't feel historic when you're sitting in it. It just feels like another day. But that doesn't mean that the moment you're sitting in is not, in fact, historic. And you don't want to look back 20 years from now and say, gee, I missed I was missing an action for my own call. And you are perfectly named and poised as Operation Hope at this time. I I love the fact that you call hope a legal drug and we cannot. There's no way to overdose on that. That's right. You said you you had a dream, you had a, a goal to, to change the world in your lifetime. Um, you, you, you clearly have, you clearly continue to. And I, I just, I think it's such an extraordinary legacy for your great, great grandfather who was a slave. Thank you. Thank you.
The mission of Operation Hope is one that builds for the long term and sets its partners up for a lifetime of financial success. We spoke with Greg and Reba about why it's so important for U.S. Bank to partner with Operation Hope. Okay, so so Greg, it was um, a fantastic, I mean, you cannot talk to JHB without yeah, <laughs> feeling yeah, like, yeah. A, you want him to be your life <laughs> yeah. coach, B, yeah. you want him to be your kid's godfather, <laughs> C, you want him to deliver the eulogy at your funeral. But um, I we, we had this great conversation, and when I say conversation, I was lucky to do the listening about um, the role that financial education plays in in emancipation, in in mm-hmm. in being able to 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 be as fully an American as everybody else, mm-hmm. what what role do you think financial education plays in in a long term partnership with with an individual who's looking for help and support? Well, it's you know, financial education is part of total wellness. Um, you know, there's. You know, many of the disparities we talked about, um, you know, financial wellness contributes not only to the um, uh, the healthy financial vibrancy of a, a household in the community, um, but we know there's a direct correlation between um, poverty and physical health diseases like hypertension, diabetes, um, heart disease, et cetera. And so I see financial education as a critical part of that entire portfolio of, um, you know, of of wellness um, uh, issues that are absolutely critical to uh, to a person's vibrancy. Um, You know, we are in in communities of color in particular. um, You aren't taught. And again, going back to the point about access, you don't have access to the information. Um, and so it's not taught in the household. Um, we've done studies here at U.S. Bank going back to several years when I first started um, that talked about how parents, particularly in communities of color, don't share information about budgeting and credit and investment and savings for a very important reason, because they don't know themselves. Right. And so they were never taught it. So they can't pass those healthy habits down. Um, to the next generation. And so it, this unhealthy behavior just continues to to manifest itself. And so um, I think the work that Operation Hope is doing to ensure that uh, one, that access to information and really demystifying um, the whole financial services industry, um, demystifying finances in particular, not only for people of color, but for women. Um, one of the things the study also suggests is that women um, are far more knowledgeable about um, financial issues, but they're less confident because they're taught from a very young age that they're not good at math, they should, yeah. that this is hard. Um, and so I think it's critical to break all of these myths, Faith, that have been taught to our communities um, about um, our ability to effectively manage finances um, and uh, what it means to be um, to be a financial, a totally healthy uh, individual and community. I'm so struck by your use of the word healthy when it comes to um, to financial education and knowledge. Yeah. It, it it makes so much sense that w- when we talk in terms 
of a community's health. Yeah, families pass down their healthy or unhealthy habits when it comes to the way they treat and nourish their bodies. But it it, it is a, it is a matter of financial and and psychological health yes. to feel um, to feel entitled to 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 make yes. to have an opportunity to make money and to feel empowered. Yeah, and a direct and those those in especially, but there is a direct correlation to not only psychological, but it also leads to physical um, health yeah. issues, as I mentioned before. Yeah, I mean, so, that is that is such a huge part of yeah. of the way that COVID has affected communities of color in particular. Exactly, exactly. Um, you're seeing all of those things come. And so it's all related, I guess, is my yeah. much more succinct way of answering it. All of those pieces are related. And so uh, if we can help um, sort of close the gap in financial education, it goes a long way um, to help alleviate some of those other disparities, certainly not all of them. Um, but you think about how many of those um, those disparities we talked about in housing, um, physical health disparities and healthcare, um, all those things are directly impacted by uh, finances and breaking the cycle of, of poverty um, and uh, the lack of access to adequate information. Reba, why did you choose to partner with Operation Hope for this project? I think we chose to partner with Operation Hope for exactly the reasons that Greg is talking about is because we knew about the disparate impact of COVID-19 on communities of color, on low to moderate income or LMI communities. And Operation Hope has a proven track record of success working in those communities. They are providing critical financial education, coaching and counseling focused on individuals, families and small businesses in LMI communities. So they were the perfect partner on the ground. And, and similar to you, you know, talking to John Hope Bryan, I remember the first time uh, we spoke with John and he told the story about an older woman uh, in one of the communities that Operation Hope serves who came in and had some challenges with her credit score. And she walked in because she recognized the person from Operation Hope who was sitting behind the desk. And she said, hey, Johnny, you uh -huh. know, and he knew her and she knew him. And as they worked through her credit score uh, or credit report together, they realized there were a couple of relatively easy to fix issues on her report that would take her credit score to a place where she could functionally participate in our American economy. Wow. So that those are the kinds of things that Operation Hope does with people who connect and know the community that they're serving and can provide resources to make sure that those communities have access to the economic uh, system, have access to opportunities to to save, to create wealth uh, that so often aren't present, um, as Greg articulated earlier. So, you know, they were the right partner for U.S. Bank in the social impact work that we do. And then when COVID struck, we knew that they would be the absolute right partner to do the work that we know needs to be done in low-income communities. LMI, does that stand for lower middle income? Lower middle, what does that stand for? Low to moderate, low to moderate income communities. Okay. When I hear LM now, I just I just think there's a missing B. It's B L M I, right? It's Black Lives Matter initiative. Um, hey, Greg, when you were coming up, what financial knowledge do you have now that you wish you had then? 
any of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I take any of it. Um, I think the um, the notion of uh, probably saving um, would be maybe the most important thing, saving and budgeting, um, the importance of credit, um, all of those things that, uh, you know, they just weren't, they just weren't present. Um, they just weren't things that um, were taught or were talked about or um, was very present for me. So, you know, my, um, I, my, my image of, you know, finances growing up, you know, my, we had a credit union in our neighborhood. Like we didn't, you know, my, my mom who was uh, widowed um, didn't have a relationship with a, what I would consider a, you know, a big bank. Um, everybody went to the credit union that was in our neighborhood. And um, I just, you know, remember that the, the gentleman who owned the credit union, um, you know, literally lived two blocks from us and knew our family. We went to church and, you know, it, it was a community. Um, and I just remember how many people who he helped, including my mom, uh, remain in their homes and, you know, during tough times. And I just, you know, always remember if we, if my mom's mortgage had been held by a large bank, we'd have been on the street. Um, and so it was, you know, what became apparent for me was just, you know, that finances and credit and that stuff was important and that I needed to try to understand and adopt uh, healthier habits, but it was truly um, this man's compassion, which really led me to really explore it uh, individually on my own. And so, uh, I, I don't know, I, I, those would be the things that I think are most important. As a bank, does Operation Hope's message resonate particularly with you in regards to long-term success? I think so. I mean, Operation Hope is focused on disrupting cycles of generational poverty. And that is exactly what we need to do as a country. That's the role that we can help play at the bank. Um, and McKinsey recently came out with a study that showed how disrupting these cycles of generational poverty and closing economic gaps will grow our economy. I think the fact was that, uh, that the McKinsey study illuminated was by closing the racial wealth gap, the US GDP could be four to 6% higher by 2028. So if you are not moved by the moral argument, if you're not moved by the social argument, I hope you're moved by the economic argument. We actually can grow our economy. We can grow our GDP significantly if we start getting real about the factors driving these economic gaps and what we have to do to create equity and start to close those gaps. In the words of Paul Wellstone, we all do better when we all do better. It's going to be good for everyone if we can get this right. We've said it before, but doing real good isn't just about donations, it's about actions. So we reached out to the people on the ground taking U.S. bank funds and turning them into positive change in their communities. 
We want you to meet Ellen Lavar, a business owner pressing on through difficult economic circumstances. Hi, my name is Ellen Lavar. I own a salon in Manhattan. It's 125 West 72nd Street. I've been in business for over 30 years now. I've been traveling with a lot of celebrities. To name a few would be Whitney Houston, who I traveled with for over 25 years. Also, Oprah Winfrey, um, Miles Davis, to name a few, Iman, Naomi Campbell, Forrest Whitaker, Julia Roberts, some people like that. So I've been doing a lot in my life when it comes to hair. I um, say that by traveling, I learned a lot about the world. I also opened my horizons to new things and new people. So I have to say that hair has enhanced my life immensely. With um, Operation Hope, I was able to keep my business and my dream alive. They helped me apply for a payment protection program loan. So so how I got to Operation Hope was actually on a wellness call with my friend Susan Taylor and Mr. Bryant was the guest speaker. He was talking about finances and how we need to manage our money better. And he was also talking about the payment protection program. And I knew I had already applied for, let's see, the payment protection program on about four different sites, but I never got a call back or an email. Um, no one contacted me to tell me the status of my uh, loan. So my reason for trying to speak to Mr. Bryant was to see if he could help me get some kind of response from these people of where the status of my loan was. But it turned out to be much, much better after calling him. So they sent my, um, my request to um, Mr. Ortiz and Mr. Ortiz called me and helped me apply through them for a payment protection loan. And he held my hand all the way through. He called me, he emailed me. I had missed a couple of questions on the application. So he called me and let me know which questions I needed to answer. I did that. And that was all in one day. By the next day, my loan was approved. I was elated. I was shocked and elated, but I was elated. I hadn't heard from any of those other places. They hadn't called me, whereas with Hope, they called me right away. They handled their business right away. I have to say, if there's anything that I wanted to say about the program, is that that they are professional, courteous, and they're only interested in your success. And that's what I love about the program. So I'm definitely hoping to work with um, Hope again and Mr. Bryant. You know, I definitely want to show my gratitude for the help that they gave me. And even with the help that they gave me, it wasn't like it had to stop right there. Um, Mr. Ortiz was um, kind enough to say, give my number to your friends, which I did. And they did call. And he's helping them to get their payment protection program loans also. 
So I know this is a great organization. I love working with the people. They're so nice. So I plan to do some more work with them in the future. Working with them has been the most wonderful experience that I've had when it comes to trying to get money. (laughs) It was hard. It was hard trying to get money from people because as a community, we're all often uh, overlooked. And when the payment protection program came out and they said, oh, it's for small businesses, they were talking about businesses with like 500 people. And then when they said smaller, they said 50 people. But what about people like me who only have five people? And with my loan from Hope, I was able to keep all of my stylists. Whereas before contacting Hope, I had to shutter my doors. I had to let go of my people and I almost had to let go of my dream. So after talking to them, I was able to rehire everyone. I'm able to retrofit my salon for all the requirements to reopen and I'm able to pay back rent. So we're going to start on a level playing field again, because at the time that we had to shut our doors, we were just about to get over a hump because I had moved from a large salon to a smaller salon. So I used most of my savings to rebuild the smaller salon. So we were just getting up to the point where we were going to be flush and then COVID hit. And this pandemic has really, really hurt our industry because we're our last in line as far as reopening that we're not given that kind of consideration when they're thinking about reopening businesses. They're thinking about big box stores and, you know, companies that have a lot of people, not small, small businesses, the mom and pop places like my salon and maybe the the neighborhood bodega and people who work for themselves that need to get to work. So with Operation Hope, they help you to navigate all of that and get around all of bureaucracy to get in line, to get what you need to help your business stay afloat. And that's what I really, really love about them. I just want to say thank you, Operation Hope, and thank you, U.S. Bank. Thanks so much for listening to Real Good by U.S. Bank. If you like what you heard, listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.